0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ontario's mask mandates will come to an end later this month. Back in January, Premier Doug Ford said Ontario was, quote, very, very close to a child care deal with Ottawa, but parents are still waiting. What impact will America's ban on Russian oil imports have on the war in Ukraine? And what is Vladimir Putin's endgame in that country? And the leadership race in the federal... Progressive Conservative Party is about to get real crowded. And will former PM Stephen Harper get involved? The GMH podcast starts now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Big day here in the province of Ontario. And we've had some biggies over the last little while, over the last couple of years, of course, with lockdowns and restrictions and case counts and death counts. And uh, you name it, we've had it. Mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Today at 11 o'clock, and you're going to hear it live on the Bill Kelly Show right here on 900 CHML, Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Kieran Moore is going to hold a news conference to talk about what is being called, quote-unquote, live with and manage COVID-19. So this appears to be the final message from Kieran Moore on the COVID-19 pandemic. We're hearing that this is going to be his final COVID-related news conference. Now, yeah, whether that's the case or not, maybe the last one for a long while, or at least a little while. I guess that all depends on how the pandemic proceeds from here on in. But one of the big messages today, and this is, this is going to be quite divisive because there are many people who are going to celebrate today's announcement that mask mandates are coming to an end. And what we're hearing is that date is going to be March 21st. And many people, maybe just as much, are going to be on the other side of the equation. No, I'm not ready. Can't do it. Don't want this to happen. And there is going to be uh, much divisiveness, I think, about this. The one thing I hope we do not see, and I can almost see it unveiling, Is that someone who is uncomfortable with going maskless, entering a shop, a grocery store, I don't know, a gas station kiosk, you name it, whatever indoor setting you are visualizing, a person who's uncomfortable in that setting, at least around other people, wanting to wear a mask. And it will be their prerogative. It will be their freedom, so to speak, to wear a mask where they want to. And that is going to be their personal choice of course it is and so what i hope we do not see is individuals who choose to wear masks get berated or shamed into taking the mask off by others who are looking at this individual to say well, what are you doing you know you're, you you don't have to wear that mask and 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 that's true we will not have to wear them but many people will choose to wear them of course in hospitals in long-term care settings, on public transit like the HSR, go trains, go buses, whatever the case is, um, you will still have to wear the mask. But in a mall, in a school, which is going to be great for the kids, uh, no longer have to wear a mask. But you, you know just as I. We're, we're going to have that scenario where people are wearing masks that are going to be ridiculed, shamed. Uh, berated for continuing to wear the mask because there is a section of the population, unfortunately, who are uh, non-believers. Don't believe the severity of the covid-19 pandemic. Don't believe in vaccines. Don't believe in the mask wearing. And I I think they were going to unleash some of that vitriol on those who continue to want to wear masks. This issue is also the focus of our Twitter poll question of the day. At AM 900, CHML is the place to go to check it out and vote. Once Ontario's mask mandate is lifted, and again, we're hearing on March 21st, will you continue to wear your mask in indoor settings? Yes, no, or maybe for a while longer. Right now, 52% say yes, they will continue to wear a mask in indoor settings. 32% 32% say, no, they're going to light that baby on fire. And another 15% say, maybe for a while longer. And I'm certainly not going to be in the no category. I think I'm going to be either in the yes, and maybe leaning a little bit more towards the maybe for a while longer. Because as we know, this, this virus has been unpredictable. And those who have contracted COVID-19 and have recovered might have the best sense on how uh, debilitating, especially if they have long COVID symptoms, debilitating this virus can be. Many people who have contracted it uh, have been fine. I know many people who are, you know, they have those cold-like symptoms, you know, stuffy nose, or a scratchy throat, or it kind of felt like the flu. You know, they were hit hard for a few days, but they've been okay, primarily because, well, they, they have a double or even a triple dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And so when it comes to mask wearing, they see, I, I think many of them, most of them would see the value of continuing to wear the mask. For me, I, I think I'll, I'll continue to wear the mask at least for a little while longer. Because again, the unpredictability of the virus, just because the government says, public health officials say that it's okay to ditch the mask. And we should believe them in in many regards. Your comfortability is where you're going to draw the line. And your risk assessment. We we live our lives uh, basing every action, not necessarily on a life or death risk assessment, but we see pros and cons in many of the decisions that we have to make. This is one that is going to come down the pipe, and we're going to have to make that decision. So I think I'm leaning towards maybe a while longer i just want to see how this plays out i want to i want to gauge my comfortability in that indoor setting and then i'll make that evaluation based on how i feel and and maybe one day i'll i'll ditch the mask and maybe the next day i'll put it back on because i i wasn't really comfortable with that i think we've really grown comfortable with wearing the mask but i think there's a little part of us as well that really wants to tear it off and throw it into the wind and see how far it goes
1: you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml we're
2: all just waiting on the government of ontario
1: we're at the table we have been for months with the federal government urging them for a longer term investment an increased investment and more flexibility to support all families
0: ten dollar a day child care is it ever going to happen in this province ontario is the last province to hammer down a deal with the federal government to get this child care deal in place. Every other province, every other territory has managed to do it. What is the stumbling block? Why can't we get this done? Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You heard from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Education Minister Stephen Lecce there. Back on January 24th, the premier of this province, Doug Ford, said, quote, Ontario was very, very close to a child care deal with the feds. Yet it's March the 9th and we're still waiting. What's the hold up? Carolyn Ferns is a policy coordinator with the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Carolyn.
3: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So what gives? What's going on? Well, it's a, a really good question. It's the it's the, the $10.2 billion question, really, which is what has been the delay in Ontario signing on? Um, you know, as you said, every other province and territory has already signed on to this deal with no problems about the allocation or the strings attached to the money, what the principles are. Um, but here in Ontario, you know, it's been months that um, the Ontario government has said, They're, you know, going to sign on, but they haven't signed on. Um, Just to put this in perspective, the federal plan was announced in last year's budget, and the first deal was signed in the summer. So it's been months now. Now, yesterday, we finally heard the uh, Minister Lecce confirm um, that they've finally, Ontario has finally submitted their action plan to the federal government, which is then what the negotiations happen around, Right. So apparently this is to put them into a new phase of negotiations. But we're sitting here uh, March the 9th. Uh, and there's a deadline looming of, of March 31st um, where, you know, if we if Ontario doesn't sign on, we could, um, you know, lose the first year of funding. So uh, we certainly don't want that to happen. And I hope that both parties are really negotiating in earnest to get, uh, you know, a good deal for uh, Ontario families.
0: So back in late January when Premier Ford said we were very, very close to a deal, I guess um, he was either misled or or was misremembering something. But uh, obviously <laughs> that, we, that, that was nowhere near. The case, what are you hearing from parents? Let's take it down to the ground floor. What are parents saying?
3: Oh, I mean, parents are very frustrated about this uh, situation, you know, and uh, what's been happening is that since January, you know, all the other provinces and territories that have signed on, we've started to see and hear in the media um, you know how they are moving forward on affordable child care and you know parents in uh, you know everywhere BC to, to Newfoundland are getting uh, you know emails and uh, calls from their child care programs saying your fees will be going down you know they're getting notices to say you're going to be your child care fees are going to drop by 50 percent this year. so parents all over the country are starting to benefit. Um, And, you know, these provinces also have plans to expand childcare and to increase the wages for early childhood educators in their provinces. And, you know, here in Ontario, we're stuck just, uh, you know, (laughs) nowhere. Um, And in fact, parents here in Ontario have gotten, you know, the opposite. They've gotten notices saying your childcare fees are going to be going up this year. Um, And so I think it's really frustrating for families. um, And uh, I think they're uh, really frustrated that the uh, provincial government has really wasted a lot of time on this. You know, I hear Minister Lecce say, oh, you know, we want a sustainable uh, childcare system here in Ontario. You know, if that was really true, surely they would have got to work faster on this with more ambition and come out you know not just behind closed doors with an action plan but But, you know, shared it with the with the community, Um, you know, really had a plan for child care that we could say what it was. Um, And that just hasn't happened. So I think there's a lot of frustration.
0: Carolyn Ferns is a policy coordinator with the Ontario Coalition for Better Childcare. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We've come to understand that Ontario's deal is a little more difficult to negotiate because we do it. uh, We do daycare differently than other provinces. Is that the case?
3: Um, You know, that's certainly what uh, the message has been from uh, Premier Ford and Minister Lecce, but it really isn't the the case. I don't see, you know, when when I saw the federal plan announced and... uh, what other provinces and territories were doing, I thought, you know, this is a slam dunk for Ontario. We're actually in a really good place to take this forward. And we have a, you know, a pretty, um, you know, uh, you know, solid childcare system uh, on the ground that could grow. Um, and and uh, a way, you know, the, the role of municipalities is, is there, you know, that they can help with local planning. Um, it should have been a slam dunk. This should have been easy. Ontario could have signed this deal in the summer if they wanted to. Um, So that's what I think has led to a lot of the frustration in the community and, and for families because they feel like, well, really, what is the holdup? These, these um, excuses that we've been hearing, they just don't hold water. Um, and so I think that, you know, really, the community wants to move forward. The childcare sector wants to move forward and make this happen. And I hope that now, finally, the, the Ontario government is feeling sufficient pressure that they're going to uh, move forward and sign on to this deal.
0: Hopefully it happens sooner rather than later. Carolyn, always appreciate your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the day.
3: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Carolyn Ferns, Policy Coordinator with the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. Ottawa allocated $10.2 billion for Ontario's child care plan. More than a billion of that is earmarked for this fiscal year, 2021-2022, which ends March 31st, which is in like three weeks. Um, Are we in jeopardy of losing out on millions, or is that money going to be hopefully just reallocated to the end of the deal? We shall find out.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Today I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. Defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well in the United States. That is U.S. President Joe Biden. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Don't forget, you can take us on the go. Subscribe to the GMH podcast wherever you get your favorite podcast. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, CuriousCast.ca. Pounce on any of those platforms. Hit the follow button as well so you never miss an episode. So as you heard, U.S. President Joe Biden announcing a ban on importing Russian oil while more American companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, starbucks suspending operations in russia what do these latest developments mean in the war in ukraine adela Silman is a reporter with the washington post and joins us now on good morning Hamilton. good morning adela hi
2: there good morning does
0: america's ban on russian oil imports hurt the kremlin
2: um so this is this is what we're we're led to believe I mean Russia is one of the world's biggest um exporters of oil and these sanctions which are quite unprecedented by the biden administration are really set to hurt the kremlin and um it's also been followed not entirely but in part by the European Union who have also agreed to Uh, limit their russian oil to about two-thirds and here in london where i am in britain they're also going to phase out reliance on russian oil they say by the end of the year so this is really major in terms of global sanctions and it's really trying to hit russia where it hurts
0: we're certainly seeing higher gas prices here in canada the same story in the u.s is that also playing out in
2: europe Definitely, um, there's been stories today about fights breaking out in four courts in in Europe, and people are really feeling the pinch at the uh, petrol pumps as the prices are going up. I think also in the US yesterday, uh, the AAA released data saying that it was for the first time since 2008 and the financial crisis, the cost of gas in the US has gone over four dollars, um, which is really hefty. And in places like California, I think pots. It has gone over $5. So um, consumers are going to be feeling this.
0: It's actually, some stations in California I saw yesterday that was nearing $8 a gallon, which is just mind-boggling. Adela Suleiman is our guest, breaking news reporter based out of London for The Washington Post. Um, heard yesterday that the U.S. Defense Department has rejected an unexpected offer by Poland to have America take custody of Soviet-era fighter jets that would then be transferred to Ukraine. I guess the initial plan was for Poland to have these fighter jets Jets and just give them to Ukraine, but they're using, I guess, want to use America as an intermediary. Is NATO's unity starting to show some cracks here or is this a smooth sailing?
2: Um, I don't think I'd go as far as to say that it was it was showing cracks necessarily, but Poland um, have made this request and the US has kind of batted it down um, in the same way that we see that Ukraine's President Zelensky has been re- requesting a no-fly zone quite consistently since the start of the crisis. And NATO allies have been re- rejecting that request because to do so would really pull in NATO allies and make this a full scale Uh, global war, uh, which obviously the US and its allies are trying to avoid, but they have said that they will support Poland in other ways. Um, But to directly get involved with with military is is not something that's on the agenda right now, from what we know.
0: Adela, has there been any more chatter about a no-fly zone? I know the Ukraine has requested it. So far, NATO uh, allies have said no.
2: Um, Yes, so there's a video that's just come out this morning from uh, Ukraine's leader Zelensky, and he's again repeating his request for a no-fly zone, and he's saying that if this isn't imposed, it's going to be massive. I think the quote was humanitarian uh, catastrophe or consequences. Um, and as you have seen from the images, you know, there's a massive exodus of refugees. There's a worry about the weather now in Ukraine getting extremely cold. People are still in underground bunkers in the capital. Um, so he is really requesting this as well as the um, use of humanitarian corridors. Um, so so uh, that's, that's an issue that's on, on many people's minds as well as human rights organisations and and big charities and nonprofits.
0: our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml adela suluan breaking news reporter for the washington post as we reflect on the latest in ukraine Uh, president zelensky spoke to the uk parliament yesterday got a standing ovation for uh, his speech Um, what impact is that going to have in bringing maybe the uk a little closer to accepting terms like a no-fly zone or doing more to help the cause
2: yeah, it was really interesting, that address. Um, as you know, it was the first time ever. Um, it's quite a historic moment that a, an external person made such a direct live address. It was on a big screen in, in the British Parliament and uh, united both sides of the aisle. As you say, there was a standing ovation. So it was a very dramatic event. And the British newspapers this morning are all leading with that Um And uh, the UK's position is interesting because this is the first real major crisis, you know, foreign policy crisis since Brexit. So it can take a slightly different position to its European Union uh, partners and nations. And and we have seen that it's done so, um, particularly on refugees. The UK has Come under a bit of criticism for taking fewer uh, refugees than the EU, which has has gone for a more wholesale welcoming approach. Um, and there's also differences on the military side, which the UK can can go slightly further on uh, without having to wait to get to, you know group uh, consolidation and permission from the European Union. So it's an interesting time for the UK. Um, definitely.
0: In regards to refugees, we know that two million people have now fled Ukraine to neighbouring countries. Can you speak Mm -hmm. to the humanitarian crisis that this war has created?
2: Yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, uh, the picture that we're we're getting from our correspondents on the ground and um, from from the reports are, you know, it's it's worsening. (laughs) Um, People are fleeing mostly to Poland. Um, As I said, the weather is changing um, and people are really... uh, and human rights organisations are really trying to secure these um, humanitarian corridors and aid. It's also in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, so there's, that's also an issue which is the World Health Organisation has, has been um, bringing to the forefront. Uh, we also did a story last week, I don't know if you saw, on cancer patients in a hospital who had all moved underground in a children's hospital, and now they're also facing... Um, uh, being removed to other safer cities in Ukraine or out to Poland because they obviously have to stay in to get their therapy treatment. Um, so, yeah, the, the picture is 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 a, is a complicated one on that front.
0: Uh, a grim one and a gut-wrenching one as well. Adela, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for uh, joining us and uh, best of luck going forward covering this story. Thank you. Adela Suleiman, breaking news reporter based out of uh, London, England, with The Washington Post as we reflect on some of the latest happenings in and around Ukraine.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Ukrainians are strong and courageous and standing up to defend their land. And NATO has never been more united and determined than we all now We are now, and I know I can speak for all NATO members when I say we will all abide by Article 5.
0: This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing that, uh, yes, even if Russia encroaches on one centimeter of NATO land, uh, they will adhere and respect Article 5, which basically means if one NATO nation is uh, attacked, then all NATO nations will uh, become involved in that conflict. We've seen some devastating videos and photos uh, and, and have seen the devastation that this war in Ukraine has caused on the Ukrainian people, which has led us to believe, and we've been kind of thinking about this over the last little while, what is Russian President Vladimir Putin's endgame in Ukraine? And what will be needed for him to consider his invasion of Ukraine a victory if there if there is such a thing. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton is Dr. Norman Pereira, professor emeritus in the Department of History and Department of Russian Studies at Dalhousie University. Dr. Pereira, good morning. Welcome to the show.
4: Good morning. Thank you.
0: Prime Minister Trudeau and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Vladimir Zelensky spoke by phone this morning. We've learned that Canada is going to send surveillance drones to Ukraine. What do you make of this announcement and Canada's overall support of Ukraine?
4: I think uh, it's appropriate. Um, I think that the uh, danger, of course, is um, getting involved uh, in a direct conflict between um, the NATO countries and Russia. So I think the American position on this has been that while every assistance should be given to Ukraine to fight off the invasion, a direct Uh, NATO involvement would be very uh, dangerous, catastrophic.
0: Can't tell you how many people I've run into, and one of the first questions they ask is, what's going on in Ukraine? Why has Russia invaded this country? What is the end game here?
4: Well, of course, there's a very different perspective um, from Russia and, and within Russia, although by no means is the support for the war Uh, unanimous. Uh, There's no way of knowing what the support is, but my sense of it is that while the majority uh, of Russians buy the uh, Kremlin um, line on this matter, there are many people who are very critical uh, and they are getting arrested and taking very serious risks with their own lives and freedom in support uh, of the uh, peace effort, in support of of stopping the invasion. Uh, If you're asking me what Putin's end game is, That's a difficult, um, very difficult question to answer. I can't get inside his head. But there are at least three scenarios that come to mind. Um, The most modest scenario, I think, would be to secure the two um, Donbas uh, so-called republics um, permanent independence, recognition from Ukraine, as well as recognition of Crimea as part of Russia. Um, That's the most modest goal, I I think. The the second goal would be to change the government um, in Kiev to a government which is friendly to Russia, or at least neutral. The third would be occupying the entire country and controlling it as a satellite. That, I think, uh, would be extremely uh, problematic from uh, Russia and Putin's point of view because it would cause almost certainly guerrilla warfare, partisan warfare in the western part of the country. Uh, west of the Dnieper River, there would be tremendous resistance, and it would go on for years.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHL is Dr. Norman Pereira, professor emeritus at Dalhousie University. Word out of Russia is that Putin has grown increasingly frustrated at the length of this invasion and is ready to double down. What could double down mean?
4: Well, double down would mean bringing in more forces. I mean, he has more forces at his disposal, as well as the the uh, maritime, the mil, of uh, the Navy. Um, and it could involve uh, direct um, bombardment of physical uh, invasion, destruction. Uh, I mean, I think it's very difficult to stop Putin at this point. What is necessary is us ceasefire as soon as possible. Um, and a settlement which would respect the integrity uh, of uh, Ukraine. Uh, How possible that is, I don't know. But you you know that um, the foreign minister of Russia and Ukraine are supposed to meet tomorrow uh, in Turkey. um, And perhaps there can be some uh, more peaceful resolution of the matter, or at least a ceasefire. There's also some indication that um, evacuations are occurring with some success. Um, there have been a temporary ceasefire. So uh, I, there's some reason to be hopeful, but I, I don't think that escalating the conflict um, by involving NATO is the answer.
0: We will continue to watch how the situation unfolds in Ukraine. Dr. Pereira, thank you very much for your time today.
4: My
0: pleasure. That is Dr. Norman Pereira, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History and Russian Studies at Dalhousie University.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: It was a few weeks ago, actually back on January 24th, when Premier Doug Ford said Ontario was, quote, very, very close to a child care deal with the federal government. It's March the 9th, and we are still waiting. What's the holdup? We'll chat with... Uh, Carolyn Ferns from the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care. Those two topics coming up in our 8 o'clock hour. Later on this hour, is former Prime Minister Stephen Harper going to get involved in the CPC leadership race? Those progressive conservatives now without Erin O'Toole as their top dog looking for the next one. Who is that next one going to be? Well, I think we have come to understand that this leadership race is going to be very crowded here to help us navigate what may or may not happen. David Tarrant, he's the Vice President, National Strategic Communications, Enterprise Canada, and former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. David, good morning. How are you? Hey, good
5: morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thanks for coming on. Let's first chat about the three confirmed candidates. We know that Pierre Polyev is in. We know that Leslyn Lewis has thrown her hat back into the ring, and Ontario Independent MPP Roman Baber has uh, launched his leadership campaign. What do you make of this Trioka right now?
5: Well, I mean, there's just different levels of, of, of seriousness in the three candidates who have uh, officially announced their intention to join. Listen, uh, with Pierre, I mean, Pierre's obviously the frontrunner, and I think he's going to be viewed as the front frontrunner in this campaign uh, for uh, a long time to come and probably throughout the entire race. Um, you know, there's a lot of things. There's a couple things people should note about Pierre from the get-go. He he has deep connections uh, and uh, has a very large supporter base among current conservative members. Um, This is not just because he has a high public profile. He actually works really hard to build a network across the country. He's in terms of fundraisers for other candidates and other MPs. And, of course, he has, quite frankly, an unparalleled social media presence. The the challenge of Pierre, of course, is that... um, he, uh, he fires up the opponents of the Conservative Party. He is, uh, he's viewed as a, as a divisive figure. He's been an attack dog in the past. And that leads some people who are kind of on the fence to wonder if he's too divisive to win. And, you know, so his challenge is going to be to show that actually he can he can do more than fire up his base core supporters. And can he actually appeal to a broader electorate? And I think you'll see some of that, um, you know, through, throughout the months ahead as well. Les and Lewis, um, you know, a remarkable personal story, uh, you know, uh, She's uh, and uh, as that, that people wondered in the last run if she was going to uh, you know if that story could translate into a strong organization for the leadership. She did really well. Uh, people people kind of viewed the previous conservative leadership race as a as a uh, as a no tool for Peter McKay thing. But she actually you know won more votes but but less fewer points to the leadership rules than the two frontrunners on that ballot. And so she's shown that she can mobilize social conservatives who are a strong constituency within the Conservative Party, uh, by speaking authentically to their values, and she shouldn't be taken for granted. Listen, Roman Baber, this, uh, I used to live in, in Mr. Baber's riding. Uh, you know, Mr. Baber, likes, Mr. Baber likes attention for himself. Uh, I don't expect him to be there in the final ballot. So, I mean, he's already getting, uh, I think, more attention than his campaign will probably end up going right?
0: Those are the three who are officially in There are a host of names who are contemplating or we are expecting them to toss their hat into the ring. Maybe most fascinating is that of Jean Charest. What do you make of mr Charest and, and his chances of ultimately winning this race should he in fact decide to go into it
5: well this is Mr. Charet is entitled to enter the race and 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 you know and talk about his contributions to Canadian public life, whether it was uh, of the old kind of progressive Conservative Party back in the day or in the Quebec Liberal Party. Uh, you know, he's, he's, had, he's had a long career uh, to, at, at, that he can talk about and listen, with, with pluses and minuses to it. Um, so Mr. Sherey and his supporters are, are, are bound to try. I, I think there's, there's two things about Sherey that I, I find noteworthy. One is the number of people who have never voted Conservative in their life who are touting Jean Charest as the kind of leader conservatives need. And I see a lot of people in your line of work, Rick, media commentators and, 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 and people who are opinion leaders who say, oh, this is the, this is the guy conservatives need who, to, to broaden the tent. And I look at them and go, this person who's commenting on the electability of Jean Charest has never voted conservative in his life. And so one I one refrain I use all the time in talking to people is don't take advice from people who actually aren't invested in seeing a conservative prime minister. But he does very, very well. Like, there's there's no conservative in the race who's more popular among liberals than Jean Chouret. And that probably should give people pause for thought. The second thing about Chouret, I think that's really important, is he needs to actually both regionally and, quite frankly, philosophically, uh, do a lot of work to convince conservatives that he's not going to, on on contentious issues, break to the side of the Liberal Party. Uh, You know, uh, What's Jean Chouret going to do about carbon taxes, for instance? If he, if, if, if he wants to come out and roll out the fact that he believes that, that, that conservatives who are conservatives at a time of $2 per liter gas uh, should just roll over and let, and let the Trudeau carbon tax continue to kick in, then he's going to have a very rough ride and, and he's going to have a very difficult time holding the party together. So he needs to do a lot of work to actually convince uh, conservatives that he's actually not going to portray them on issues that matter to them.
0: Is he not the best option, though, to at least steal a bunch of seats in the 416-905, the GTA area? And quite frankly, if that doesn't happen, you know, the liberals are back in power, more than likely.
5: Uh, listen, that's going to be the core of his case, um, that he can do it. Uh, I maintain that there are probably a lot of current conservative voters, Who vote for conservative party because they on things like the carbon tax that if he that if capitulates on that issue he gives them less of a reason to stick around so you got to kind of pick up two voters for every voter you leave you you lose if you run to the middle so so but he actually absolutely can make that case and he will try to make that case but you know if you go kind of beyond the nine oh five here Rick you know there's a I mean anybody in your listeners who spent time in Western Canada knows there's a palpable anger. In Western Canada, about uh, about how they're they're taken for granted by Eastern Canada, and that's doubly true among Western Canadian conservatives. And right now, we have we have we have you know Western Canadian parties, whether it be Jay Hill's party, uh, you know, who are who are um, advocating you know essentially uh, almost a form of Western Canadian separatism, and they believe that their interests are being sold out once again. uh, You actually are putting seats at risk in Western Canada. Uh, and that I'm not even going to begin to talk about in terms of you know what what Maxime Bernier, who you know is a is a pretty cancerous uh, 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 position in Canadian politics, but he'll also be be hovering around trying to trying to divide conservative votes. So it, you know if if you want to talk about how you're a more electable candidate, you have got to kind of show that you can keep current supporters in the party while you broaden the tent. And that's going to be a big part of Mr. Cheree's challenge.
0: That's a good point. I used to uh, live in Alberta back in the uh, late 90s, and that was the case then. And I- I'm sure it's been forever the case since uh, senior Trudeau, or the the first Trudeau in Parliament, uh, was uh, doing his thing. David, really appreciate the time we've got to run. Thank you for your time. and Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Rick. Have a good one. You too. That is David Tarrant, vice president at Enterprise Canada, former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Should be a very interesting PC leadership race.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: We continue our discussion about the uh, extremely fascinating progressive conservative leadership race. Three confirmed candidates have entered the race. More are sure to be on the way, including some heavy hitting names. One heavy hitting name is actually a former prime minister, and that is Stephen Harper. And there is some debate and there's this debate each and every time a leadership race happens with every party. Does that leader get involved some way? Does that leader meddle? Does that leader throw his or her support behind the next person in line? Well, let's ask our next guest. Peter Wollstonecroft is a retired University of Ottawa professor of political science and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Peter.
6: Hey, Rick. I'm University of Waterloo.
0: Oh, Waterloo. What did I say? Uh, Ottawa. Oh, yeah. Totally, totally different. Uh, Waterloo has a better pension plan. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully so. Yeah. Um, what are the chances Mr. Harper gets involved in this race, or is he just saying, "Hey, I, you know, I'm I'm done with the Conservatives; they can do their own thing"?
6: I don't think he's done, and he'll be uh, he'll be there in some way. It's an interesting question. You would think a leader would go away and just leave things be, and the "my time is past" kind of uh, view. But I suspect he'll be there, and uh, and I accept the view that this is going to be a big battle uh, and for the heart and soul of the party and and for me the question is 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 there in its genetics is it possible to find a person who can win well ideally somebody who can appeal across the country and build a national coalition but the reality is you have to find somebody you can win in Ontario and Quebec yeah and and uh, there's no good winning one of them you would have to win both of them uh, from the point of view of national unity and, and establishing a good, good community across the country. So you want to have a competitive party across Canada, but you also want to find a party or a party or leader who can be competitive inside Ontario and Quebec. And when I say inside, I mean in the cities. Uh, the Conservatives have a strong base in rural, small-town Ontario, and uh and have a small base in Quebec but you have to, you have to win in the cities uh, nationally the conservatives hold no seats in Montreal Toronto Vancouver and some in the outside sur- suburbs in Toronto and, and Vancouver in my area we have five constituencies this warder region they're all liberal in 2011 not so long ago 24 election ago, elections ago they were all conservative So if the Conservatives want to form a minority-majority government, they have to win two or three seats here. They have to win seats in the Hamilton area. They have to win seats in, in, if you want, the second-tier, all due respect to Hamilton, second-tier urban areas. It's going to be very hard to win in Toronto, so they have to win Hamilton, Kishore, Waterloo, London, those areas.
0: The the most fascinating name, and he's not officially in yet, but uh, all indications are that Jean Charest will indeed throw his hat into the ring to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, you know, my my inkling is that he can win those seats in Quebec. He's the best positioned to do so in the GTA. But does the party run the risk of perhaps losing a few seats in Western Canada because he's not that well? He's not Pierre Polyev.
6: <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Uh, they're both bilingual, though I would say Jean Charest is more bilingual. Uh, but no, he's not Pierre Bialik at all. Uh, he's a different kind of conservative. And I, I think, from the point of view of of the party, it is it is distressing that some of their rhetoric has been pretty nasty. And he's not even a candidate. And so people are saying, "Well, he's not even a conservative. He's a liberal. He's yeah. a liberal." Well, there was no conservative party in in Quebec. Uh, there is now, but there wasn't at the time, and and he didn't particularly want to leave his national leadership of, of the party, but the call was from across the country: you have to go to Quebec to save Quebec from the separatists. So he went to Quebec, and he fought the good battle, and he was premier for quite a while. And you know, you could argue about his record, but nonetheless, he 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 was a liberal because that was the only option available for the for the federal side of things so there you go but he gets no credit for that but he yep. gets blamed for everything else but it, it, from from the point of view of the party it is a real problem when opponents are attacking each other before they're all fully candidates
0: we got about a minute does it matter whether or not mr harper supports a particular candidate does it matter to voters
6: not to voters it will matter matter in, in parts of Western Canada, and, and in, the, in the highest echelons of the party. Uh, yeah, it will matter. Uh, so Jean Charest knows that, and I think it's indicative that he's having his kickoff, and no doubt that's what's going to happen tomorrow, in Calgary. I mean, that's that's good optics, right? He's not, he's not in Sherbrooke, or he's not in the deepest, darkest, darkest Montreal. He's in Calgary. So it, no, he's, he's put his sword on the table, and he said, I'm going to take you on, and... Uh, I mean, he's not in first place, but that's fine. The first place only matters on September the 10th.
0: That is true. Peter, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Hi. That is Peter Wollstonecraft, retired University of Waterloo, professor of political science, joining us to dissect the upcoming or the ongoing CPC leadership race.
1: Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
0: The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.